Lesson number six, what is the heart? We're calling this lesson Controlling Your Soul. And this is going to fly in the face of all that is American and pop psychology right now, but we're going to base it on the Bible. So let's quickly read, because we do have seven pages today. The previous three lessons serve to prove part of our heart definition. Remember, we defined our heart as the manifestation of the operation of the soul, or your heart is whatever you think and keep on thinking. Your heart is whatever you want and keep on wanting. And your heart is whatever you emote and keep on emoting. Therefore, if you can control your mind, your will, and your emotions, you can control your heart. You can change your heart. All right? We thoroughly observe that the heart, the heart acting like the mind, the will, and the emotions, our next task is to see if the Bible presents the soul as controllable. Now, regardless of what your four-year-old wants to tell you, the soul is controllable. Regardless of what your 44-year-old friend wants to tell you, the soul is controllable. Regardless of what your soul wants to tell you, it is controllable. I just, yesterday, Bud Bud was whining about something, and he was fussing and crying, and I said, go stand by the paddle. It instantly dried up. Sorry, Daddy. Like, yeah, I thought that was all fake. Go stand by that paddle. I thought if a four-year-old boy can control this, where's the 44-year-old woman? Amen. Our next task is to see if the Bible presents the soul as controllable. That is, can we control our thoughts, desires, and emotions? Because if we can, then we can control our heart. And if we can control our heart, then such popular secular notions like trust your heart and you can't control who you fall in love with fall apart under the burden of biblical responsibility. I want to go ahead and say it over and over again. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you can't control who you fall in love with. It's a lie. You can control who you fall in love with. You can control who you fall in love with. And then you can also control who you fall out of love with. So this other secular notion, well, we just fell out of love. Fix it. I just don't love her anymore. Fix it. You can. It's a commandment. Remember, the heart is whatever we think and keep on thinking. What uh, we want and keep on wanting. Emote and keep on emoting. If we can control and even change what we think, want, and emote, then we can change our heart. And if we can change our heart, shouldn't we change it to line up with God's word? Absolutely. And if we should, then what are we waiting for? These lessons will strip away from you any excuse that lets you stay the same. And these lessons will cause you to be judged quicker and more severe because we're being taught how to change who we are. We can no longer use the lame psychology excuse, well, that's just not who I am. Change it. Well, I wasn't raised that way. Change it. Well, I don't feel that way. Change it. Well, it's not in my heart. Get it in your heart. Well, this is in my heart. It shouldn't be in your heart. Get it out of your heart. And that's why these lessons are so important. Plus, the devil knows how this works. That's why he uses propaganda, social media, and your weird friends, and your loved ones, and your dog to change your heart and to steal it away from God and his word. These lessons will strip away or strip from us any excuse for, the remain, for remaining the same. So mind control. We're going to look at mind control. We're going to look at thought, uh, 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 will control and emote or emotions control. I like emote control because it sounds like a cute little play on words. <laughs> emote control. Not every thought we have every day is our own. We recognize that. There are thoughts that are necessary to succeed in day-to-day life. There are thoughts that arise because of our job's demand. There are daydreams that arise when we want to escape. Then there are those thoughts that are random and come from out of nowhere. But regardless, we can control all of them. So let's look at a couple verses. This is probably the most familiar line on this subject. Uh, We understand how we need to 
bring into captivity every thought. But let's look at some other verses. Isaiah 26.3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. So there's a promise and a condition here. You only get peace if you keep your mind on the Lord, which infers your ability to control what you think on. This is why the Bible also teaches us to cast down and roll our cares over on the Lord. You and I totally control what we choose to think about. We control what we think about. And it's just as simple as saying, shut up and just quit thinking about it. You can worry yourself to death thinking about something you cannot change. You can worry yourself into gray hair, a heart attack, and a stroke, and it's none of your business to even think about some of those things. Brother Hagin used to say, Lord, I'm concerned, but it's none of my concern. My Canadian friends taught me, not my pig, not my farm, not my monkey, not my zoo. And there's many times I've been using that, and I think it means the problem is a pig and a zoo. <laughs> Amen. Peace is the will of God for every believer, but it is only available to those who keep their minds stayed upon the Lord. We can lay hands on people for peace, and what that honestly does, the anointing bumps that distraction off of them until they leave, and then they'll go home and pick up the same concern and be stressed all over again, and the prayer line was pointless. That's why we teach this will control, this mind control, this emotional control, because it's up to you. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So here's a commandment. Unrighteous people must forsake their thoughts. Which thoughts? The good ones or the wicked ones? The wicked ones. And if there's a commandment to forsake wicked thoughts, then guess what? You can forsake those thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. A necessary ingredient to repentance is forsaking wicked thoughts. Repentance is changing your heart and changing your life. If you don't ever change your heart and your thoughts, you'll never change your life. So how do we truly repent? Repentance is not saying, I'm sorry. That's, that's saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is totally changing the direction of your life, but you'll never change the direction of your life without changing the way you think. And the quickest way to change the way you think is just to shut down all the stuff that doesn't work for you. Shut down all the wicked thoughts, and then we'll begin to replace it with the Word of God. But most pagans know what is wicked to think and what are wicked thoughts and wicked motives, but they just embrace it because they haven't been taught restraint. These lessons are going to strip from us any irresponsibility we want to embrace. Not my problem, not my problem, not my, it's somebody else's fault. Nope, 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 nope. It's in, your, it's in your lap. You deal with it. If there's a wolf in my backyard, that wolf is not my fault, but it is now my problem. Amen. And I have lots of remedies for that problem. And none of them travel less than 900 feet per second. Amen. So it may not be your fault, but it is certainly now your problem. And if you don't deal with the problem, that will be your fault. So you can't escape responsibility. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing. That is renovation. We taught a whole service on this Wednesday night. Be transformed by the renovating of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here we have this notion that we ha have to control our thoughts. We have to recognize what is not acceptable and tear it down and rebuild it. A major portion of Christian discipleship is renewing or renovating the way we think. We can accomplish this by studying the Bible, listening to sermons, fellowshipping with the saints, and prayer. 
And all of these help and they work together. Who you fellowship with is going to affect you more than what you're reading. And I deal with you again. Some of you don't fellowship with us apart from church service. You're wrong and you're weird. Let's be very clear on it. You're wrong for it and you're weird. Why don't you want the light that's in us? Why are you comfortable with folks out there? We have to interact with them, but that shouldn't be our company. Because some of you, when you get in trouble, you run to them. You don't run to the church. You don't run to the body of Christ. You run to them. And you come here and put on a facade. And you're part of the group that will probably not see heaven. Because you're already demonstrating to the Lord who you want to be with. It's not the righteous. It's not the saints. It's not the holy. This is just your Sunday morning punch. Amen. All right. Fellowshipping with the saints because that's how you catch culture, by running with people. It's how you pick up accents. It's how you pick up style and fashion. It's how you pick up ideologies and, and mindsets. One of the most important parts of any renovation is the demolition. To renovate, some things must be torn down and replaced with God's design. And sometimes that's hard because you think, I'm really supposed to tear down that whole room? Yes, but that's how I was raised. It's wrong. Some things are just wrong. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You can bring into captivity, and you must, every thought. Part of biblical mind control is casting down wicked and unlawful thoughts. Mind control is a real thing, and it's operating in our life every moment of every day, and every entity out there practices it. So do you to some degree. When I teach something you don't like, you practice mind control on yourself. I don't like that. I don't agree with it. I'm not going to do it. Well, work it in the positive there, ding-a-ling. Why don't you do that with your weirdo friends? I don't like it. I don't agree with it. And I'm not going to do it. Oh, no, no. They put a little hook in your nose and just, or a little, little piercing, and they just pull you along like cattle. Huh. I really have no respect for any word coming out of anybody's mouth who has their nose pierced. I mean, if you've got your nose pierced, I don't think you have much to say to a Christian until you resolve that sexual trauma in your past. And if you got the one that looks like a cow, are you a lesbian? Because that's what the lesbians do. How is it you're a worship leader? What spirit does your pastor fellowship with? All right. We're talking about controlling your soul and somehow it manifests in your nose. Part of biblical mind control is casting down wicked and unlawful thoughts. However, we don't just cast them down. We bring our thought life into captivity. We don't just cast them down. Then we enslave it. The word captivity is enslavement. Every thought must be brought into obedience to God's will. That means we're always judging every thought. Do you have permission to think this? Do you have permission to worry about it? Do you have permission to dwell on it? You, you have to be able to swat things down. You, you'll come through seasons where it really is like a good old Tennessee summertime when you're driving down the road with your window down or on a four-wheeler and you hit a whole patch of gnats. And so you're... You don't go through those summer roads with your mouth open and your eyes... And day-to-day in our daily life, there are seasons where the devil's just bombarding your mind and you're just swatting. That's when you park your bike, otherwise you'll crash it, and you do this and or try to avoid the thing by quit running with weirdos (laughs) whose life is like pig pen off of Charlie Brown. You can control your thoughts by the people you hang out with. 
Dr. Barclay says the devil can't always get to you, but he can always get to one of your friends. So you make sure your friends are higher caliber than you, holier than you, cleaner than you. Amen. Ephesians 6, 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith we shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Dr. Barclay has often said, we have 10,000 thoughts a day, and some of them are actually ours. Some thoughts are actually demonic darts. We must recognize them and quench them with the shield of faith. We do not entertain them. We extinguish them on the spot. We don't play with fire. We cast it down. We say, shut up. I refuse to be depressed. Shut up. I refuse to think that. Shut up. I refuse to be angry on that. Shut up. I forgive them. You have to do a lot of talking to yourself if you're going to bring into captivity every thought. Because every thought that is allowed to settle will eventually germinate and put down roots and begin to suck the life out of you. And you got to make sure any root, any, any seed that germinates must be the word of God. Because anything apart from that, you'll be judged for the wicked fruit of it. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. So God obviously thinks we are such idiots. He has to give us a matrix net of what we can and cannot think on. And whatever that net catches, you throw away. But whatever passes through it, you dwell upon. So that kills a lot of our entertainment appetite right there. Because not everything we're watching is true, honest, just, pure, lovely. 90% of what Hollywood's cranking out is not lovely. And America has such an affinity for perversion, they're just trying to push the envelope and gross themselves out. Anything praiseworthy, think on these, these things. Those things which you have both learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Part of the ingredient to necessary peace is thinking on what God permits you to think on. And that is called mind control, and it's your responsibility. Everybody else in your world wants to control your mind. Media, propaganda, social media, music, everybody, your professor, they want a piece of your mind to control you. Everything is propagandized. Mama wants to manipulate you. Daddy wants to control you. Your sister's manipulative. All of it is mind control. So you have to be able to recognize it. But if you don't have control of your mind, it's real easy for somebody else to come along and do it. Paul tells us specifically what to think on. So then we have some other scriptures. This is probably the most established portion of this lesson that we understand. We have to control our thoughts. We have to bring into captivity every thought. We have to renew our mind. Let's move on to will control. This will destroy any Calvinist. Because if the Bible tells me to control my will, then Calvinism is debunked. Because Calvinism is God's in control. If that's the case, I don't even know why we have any word called will or want or desire in the Bible. Because if Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism um, or determinism is accurate, which it is not, then I don't even know why we have a Bible. Sure. Boop, 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 boop. Boop, boop. Let us just be robots. Because <laughs> that's all determinism is. Everything is pre-programmed, and God just sits back to watch where his trains go. Yay, it glorifies me. Yay, it glorifies me. So I mock it because it's heresy. Amen. Amen. Will control. We clearly see that we can control our thoughts, which means we have a will. But what about our wills, desires, wants, intentions, etc.? Does the Bible teach us to control our volition? If it does, then we can and we must. If the Bible teaches us to control our will, then many aspects of Calvinism crumble. 
This point is the easiest to prove. We need only to look at the very biblical doctrine of submission. Submission requires a change of will. And let me also point out, you have not submitted until you've disagreed. And disagreements will arise, and that will show you when you really are or are not submitted. So if you're just walking together, it's because you're in agreement. If you're submitted, it's because disagreement has arisen and you choose to continue walking together. America is horrible at submission. So is the American church. We submit because the Bible teaches us to do so. Genesis 16, 9, The angel Lord said unto her, Hagar, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. Hagar did not want to do that. Here was a demonstration of her will being told what to do. You go back and submit it. Why did she flee? She was being horribly mistreated and unjustly so. She had every right to flee, but God said, go back and submit. To heartache? Yes. To pain? Yes. To hardship? Yes. And she honored God and submitted to a ruthless, jealous mistress. Proverbs 24.1, be thou not envious against evil men, neither desire to be with them. So the Bible tells us what not to desire. He commands us what to desire and what not to desire. Here we're told, don't run with the weirdos. Quit playing middle school insecure games and trying to be cool and like by all the pagans. Don't desire to be with them. Be able to judge them and say, you guys are pagans. I feel sorry for you. Why would I hang out with you? Why do I want what you have? You need what I have. Or maybe there's something in you drawn to what's in them. And that deep calls out to deep. And maybe you're not even saved. Because when you're truly born again, you're either repulsed by light because you're backslid and whole, horribly gross and, and convicted. And you run from God because the light in you is convicting you. Or if you're not saved, you're drawn, you're drawn to wickedness and the light repulses you because you don't want any of it. It's, it's really simple. I don't get Christians... I don't get Christians who aren't drawn to more light. I've got to work on a sermon I'll have to deliver probably first of the year. Evidence is you're truly born again. Because if not a single preacher I know believes his whole church is making heaven, we have a lot of deceived folks in our churches. I don't know a single Christian, not a single minister, who thinks his whole congregation is going to make heaven. So, so what's going on in the pews? A lot of deception, a lot of culture. A lot of mind full of doctrine, but no heart that's ever met Christ. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them which have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Submission begins when you disagree. And we all have to pass the submission test at some point. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is not profitable for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, But covet earnestly. Here Paul tells us what to covet. Isn't that funny? The king... Uh, Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not covet. Here, Paul says, you should covet. It's all about what you want. So we're commanded to covet earnestly the best gifts. Unfortunately, the cessationist kind of writes that scripture off, but it's still in the Bible. It's still in the New Testament. We're to covet or desire earnestly the best gifts. What are the best gifts? Howard Carter, a great Assemblies of God father in the faith, said the best gift is whatever God needs you to do at the moment, whatever he wants to manifest. Whatever you need in the moment, that's the best gift. If it's healing, if it's a prophecy, whatever we need, that's what I want. We don't get picky and choosy. Just show up, God, and help, please. Yet I show you unto you a more excellent way. Paul taught strictly what we are to want, the best spiritual gifts. 
1 Corinthians 14.1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Again, the cessationist rejects that scripture, becomes disobedient, because they say there are no spiritual gifts, but yet Paul says desire. This is God commanding us to change our want. When's the last time we just prayed, Lord, I want spiritual gifts. I want the spiritual things. Lord, I, I don't even know how to want it. Lord, put an appetite in me so I'm hungry for it. I, I want spiritual things. That's what I want, Lord. You command me to want it. Well, if it has to be commanded, it means there's a deficit of it at the same time. Because you don't tell people to do something they're already doing. You tell people to do something they're not doing. 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Here is Peter telling us what to want. So if we're being commanded to want things, it means we weren't wanting them, but we have the ability to want them, and then we shift and reallocate desire for what God commands us to do. The Lord says, go to China. Lord, I don't like the Chinese. I don't care. Go to China. You will learn to love the Chinese. Or the Lord says, go back to Cookville, son. No, so, no Lord, not so. Uh, I, have, I have fled that wicked and abominable and desolate place of backwards people. Lord, you have, you have loved me and promoted me out of the upper Cumberland. Why would I return? Go back to Cookville. All right, fine. Now I want you to pastor in that place. Not so, Lord. No, why would I want to pastor in that place, in that weird, backwards? Did I say weird, Lord? Weird place where I got a degree and then escaped. Why would I go back there? I don't like those people. Desire. Uh, how about this one? And as Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's cast, he kneeled down and he prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The Lord's Prayer of Consecration is really the only proof we need that we can control our will and submit it to the plan of God Almighty. We need no other evidence, not all the other scriptures I've shown. This is the only one we need. Here's the Son of God. He has a will. He said, it's quoted of him in Hebrews, he said, I've come to do your will. And yet in this moment, his will is tearing apart from the Father's will because of what it's going to cost. And we see that, that I, don't, I don't want to say disagreement. It's not a disagreement. It's a fear, but I don't want to sound like a heretic. There's obviously a struggle here. We know he's sweating great drops of blood. We know this is called his passion. This is a great weight and a burden upon him. And in this moment, his will is pulling away from God's. And yet he submits and says, not my will, your will be done. And he was facing the worst kind of crucifixion or, or execution imaginable, and we just have trouble making it to church on time. Treat your boss like you do church. See how that goes for you. Amen. Amen. Lord, have mercy on us as Americans. This prayer of consecration, we would do well to pray every day. Father, whatever you want from me today, whatever you want from me today, Lord, Whatever you want from my weekend, whatever you want from my college degree, whatever you want from my children. I'm not going to live vivaciously through my children. It's what you want from my kids' life. You show me as quickly as you can the destiny you have for my kids, and I'll begin preparing them at four years old for that destiny. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's get to a remote control, because this is where our nation's really messed up. And we as Americans, we partake of the fountain that is our nation. Emotions are the untouchable sacred cow. 
Queen Oprah, the pop psychologist, they taught us to exalt how we feel. There's nothing wrong with evaluating how you feel, but figure out why you feel that way. My mommy spanked me. That makes me so mad. Okay, why does it make you mad? Because it hurt. Well, what did you do to get a spanking? Well, I purposely spilled paint all over her new bed. Yeah, I'd beat you like a drum too. If it was purposely. We have to understand why we have the emotions we do and then just judge them to see whether they were justifiably used. We have been led to believe that we cannot control our emotions, nor should we even try. Big lie. This is a lie that directly contradicts the Bible. If you can't control your emotions, it's because you are out of control. And we are learning, we have learned, we, are, we teach our kids all the time, get a hold of those emotions. And it really is amazing how quickly my kids, 10, 7, and 4, can turn things off. They can instantly turn off tears. Now, if they're in a really emotional, especially t tears, they'll calm it down, but they'll, they, they can shut it off instantly. Now, that might be, you know, some, some breaking, but it really is amazing. I can get a four-year-old to turn off any emotion instantly. My 10-year-old can do the same. We weren't taught that. We were taught to let the kite go with the wind and just when will you land? And when you stop, you've made such a horrific mess, you now have to reel all that string back in and apologize to everybody you ruined on the way out if you even have the humility enough to repent to all those people your emotions cut. But that's been our nation the last 60 years since the greatest generation came home and they, they just thought, well, let's just give our kids anything they want. We fought for it. Well, actually, it's the boomer generation that ruined my generation by giving them anything they wanted because dad was so hard on us. We have to tighten things back up because emotions are good, but not how we use them. Just like skill saws are good, but you don't give them to three-year-olds to play with. Guns are good because they're just a tool, but you don't give them to children to play with. You use them for hunting or sport or military. If you can't control your emotions, it is because you are out of control. And we've got to begin to recognize when we feel that familiar emotional sin beginning to rise almost like a hot spring or a geyser. Because we all sin emotionally, but we all sin differently with different emotions. Some of you are hotheads, but you're not a hothead to me because you know I'll clean your clock which means you can control it. You just don't control it with the people you claim to love the most. That makes you a scoundrel in a dirt bag. Some of you are, are emotionally, you're, you're, you'll yell and scream, but you won't yell and scream at me because you can control it. You'll just yell and scream at your husband. So you can control it. You just choose not to because of the sin of familiarity that sets in with everybody you claim to love. You can control it, you just don't. That makes you a hypocrite. <laughs> Amen. All right. <clears throat> the Bible gives us direction for when and how to use every emotion. Below, we will evaluate only, it's not four, it's more than that. Will it, below, we will evaluate several emotions, love, hate, sorrow, anger, 
joy, envy, and shame, though others will be mentioned. These are some major emotions. The Bible talks about almost every emotion we have words for. And I want to remind you that every emotion you have was found in God first. I, I would say the only exception I can think of is shame. There's no shame in God. But there's anger, there's jealousy, there's bitterness in God. Uh, but there's no shame in God. He can be provoked to envy. The spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth to envy. But all these emotions come from God. It's one of the ways we're made in his image and likeness. But he never sins with his emotions. Jesus Christ was angry twice, made a whip, drove, cleansed the temple twice, never sinned in that anger. God hates with a perfect hatred. He is a God of hate. And we're permitted to hate too. It just has to be perfect hatred. So let's look at these. Love, we're going to read a lot of scriptures now. Contrary to modern humanistic heresy, we can and must control who and what we love. God's word teaches us who and what we can and must love. Contrary to the LGBT agenda, you can control who and what you love. You are to never fall in love with the pagan. But I'm in love. Turn it off. But but he makes me feel awesome. Why are you so insecure? Stick with the Bible. Trust those around you. Deuteronomy 6.5 And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Deuteronomy commands that about 15 times. That, those words, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. It's a command, which means you can control where you aim your love at. And first and foremost, you love God with everything you've got. The Bible very rarely speaks of God loving us because that's never in question. It always commands us to love God because our love for him is always doubted. Amos 5.15, hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. Our nation loves the evil, hates the good, and we have perverted judgment in the gate. Love not sleep. Uh-oh, that's why some of you were late this morning. And every morning. I mean, it's like, that to me is like the Mexican pinata. I don't know if that's racist or not. That's the easiest thing to hit on. Just walk in late. Just walk in late. At least you showed up. Love, not sleep. Don't let your teenagers become these useless vagabonds that sleep until 3, on, 3 p.m. on Christmas break. There's no reality in that. You can sleep in at 3 p.m., but you're going to end up working third shift at a factory the rest of your life. Successful people don't sleep in. Successful people don't need 12 hours of sleep. How about Matthew 5? I send you love your enemies. That's hard to do, but we're still commanded to do it. Love not the world. There's a command right there. Neither the things that are in the world. So here the Bible's telling us what we can and cannot love. You can control your love. You should ask God, do I have permission to like this? Do I have permission to like this sport? Or do you know, Lord, in five years from now, it'll be such an idol, I'll go to hell. Amen. you got to get permission on the front end. When I went back to doing judo 20 years ago, I knew it was going to be a, a touchy spiritual subject with God. And every day I drove from Oak Ridge to Maryville to do judo. I said, Lord, anytime you tell me to drop this, I drop it. Anytime you tell me to drop this, I drop it. Thank you for letting me go again. I really enjoy this sport. But anytime you tell me to stop this, I stop this. And when the time came to walk away, it, it never pulled on my heart. But when you could become infatuated 
which is obsession, then when the Lord asks for you to do something, it becomes so hard. That's why we put everything before the Lord every day. Not my will, your will be done. Do I have permission to like this sport still, Lord? Can this still be my team, Lord? It's not a serious, hardcore 30 minutes of prayer. It's just checking in with the Lord. Are we okay, Lord? Just like your children will look at you before they do something. Is this okay, Mommy? Yeah, go have fun. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be a caveman dirtbag to them. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, I fell out of love. Well, go back to this verse and reactivate it. We, I just don't love her anymore. Go back to this verse and reactivate it. Command your heart. Love. Heart, I command you to love my wife. Thank you for my wife. She's the only one that would say yes. Amen. Nobody else was dumb enough to answer in the affirmative. Nobody else I could swipe right with on Christian Mingle would even reply. So here's, <laughs> here's a bunch of other scriptures, Deuteronomy, etc., telling you, who to love and who not to love. Hate. God is a God of hate. You don't hear that in the secret church. Hillsong won't be singing songs about that. We are to hate what God hates. We must learn to hate what he hates as he hates it. Thou shalt not hate thy brother. So there's something we don't hate. We can control hate. Ye that love the Lord. Is that you? Yeah, listen up. Uh huh. Hate evil. We hate evil in all of its forms. We don't justify any of it. David said, I hate every false way. David also said, I hate vain thoughts. That'll help you with your mind control. When you have a vain thought, hate it. Be disgusted that your mind's capable of producing that, even if it's a fiery dart. I hate them with perfect hatred. Whoo. So there's a perfect hatred that we are permitted to use, and we must. The fear of the Lord is to love everybody, give them a flower and a hug, and tell them Jesus thinks highly of you. No, the fear of the Lord, the first thing the fear of God does is hate. It hates evil. It hates pride. It hates arrogancy. It hates the evil way. It hates the froward mouth. Do I hate? Uh, we could throw Jude in there. Jude says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We're to hate evil so much, we hate our clothing because our flesh touched it. Think about how extreme a concept that is. It is interesting to note we must wash our clothes because even if they don't get dirty, they do get stinky. They get stinky by our own cursed sin nature. If it weren't for the sin nature, we wouldn't reek of B.O. Other scriptures there. I think we have over 130 scriptures in this curriculum, this lesson alone. Sorrow. Sorrow can be controlled. You hear that, sweetie? When I first got married, I had to teach my wife what to cry and what not to cry about. And I, I just had to disciple her. She'd never been discipled with her emotions. And I'd say, you dry that up. Because that is not worth crying about. You keep that up, you're going to mock our God and we're going to be in trouble. You dry that up. And then I'd have to say, no, honey, she, then she'd start to apologize. I don't mean to cry. Sweetie, this is totally worth crying about. Cry, weep, mourn. I'll cry with you. We have to learn, especially ladies, what we can and can't cry about. Because there are sometimes in the Bible, folks would cry and God would say, you dry that up right now. Now, when you're an American, that really bugs you. Because you've been taught to cry about everything. So you might manipulate somebody. Because crying's worked for you. Because it worked against mom and dad, worked against your husband. Why don't it work with God? No, remember Esau sought bitterly with tears, repentance. Couldn't find it. Because tears don't move God. 
godly sorrow does. And you can have a godly sorrow without an ounce of tears. My three-year-old, now he's four, he can cry. Oh, daddy, dad, dry that up. I've just, uh, and he'd get to laughing just like that. And I thought, if a three-year-old is learning how to manipulate with tears, what's a 33-year-old woman done for the last 30 years? We can control every emotion. And we seek God's wisdom on how to use it. Just because it's coming up out of you in a whirlwind doesn't mean you're going to please God if you burp it out. So let's look at some verses. Sorrow can be controlled and some things are not to be mourned. Leviticus 10, 2 and 3. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured, that is killed, two preachers, Nadab and Abihu. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, now this is Aaron is his brother. This is Moses' two nephews. These are the priests. Moses said to Aaron, when the boys are cooked like a crispy critter at the altar of God, because they're mocking the things of God, playing preacher. Moses says to his brother, this is his comforting words, this is it that the Lord said, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. This is God's proof that he's not to be mocked. That was the brother's comfort to his own brother over the death of his nephews. And Aaron held his peace, didn't weep. And then Moses goes on to say, tell your sons to sanctify themselves and don't go out before the people. They'll die too. No mourning was permitted. Sometimes in our charismatic circles, people get ministered to at the altar. They start weeping. And what we do as weird Americans, we want to hug them. Not realizing you'll short circuit what God is doing in their life. Or maybe what they're doing is manifesting a demon. Because I've seen that too, where they get to crying, this fake cry, and it's a demon, and somebody, some weirdo will go hug them thinking that's what the Lord's saying to do. No, you don't get this. We're, such, we're, we're, we're emotionally out of control. We should be emotional, but not emotionally out of control. 1 Samuel 16, 1, the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected, rejected him from reigning over Israel? Samuel was crying, and the Lord said, Stop. Don't cry over this. Nehemiah 8. This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. Now, why were they crying? Because Nehemiah had just spent eight hours reading the law, and Israel realized what a bunch of backslidden pagans they had been, and their hearts were broken. And here's a moment of repentance, and the, and the prophet says, Nehemiah, do not weep. This is a holy day. This is actually the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's supposed to be a holy day of convocation and happiness. Do not weep or mourn, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. He said, eat the fat, drink, drink the sweet. This is a day of rejoicing, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the context of that in Nehemiah 8. Weep ye not for the dead. Wow. Oh, we still hurt, and the concept is not that we don't cry at funerals, because that's the best time to cry. But you don't bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goes away. This is Jeremiah talking about the captivity coming upon Israel. Don't weep for the dead. They get the best end of the stick. Those that are about to be enslaved, those who you need to weep for. Those that die today, they avoid all the pain that's coming. Mourn for those that are enslaved in sin and going off to Babylon. For he shall return no more, nor see his native country. 1 Corinthians 7.30 And they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoiced not. So there's a time when we dry it up. There are sometimes I, I look at some believers and I think, how much longer will you cry? 
Have you not learned by now crying fixes nothing? If it would have fixed your situation, it would have been fixed 16 gallons ago. So how about we act joyful now? How, you can be depressed, but depression ain't fixing nothing. You can be downcast, but unless you've sinned and you're walking softly before the Lord, there's no reason to be downcast. This is totally a choice. Church, this is totally a choice. We know we can control our thoughts. We know we can control our mind, our, our emotions, our want, but it also means we can control our emotions. We've just been taught for so long, just let it go, let it do what it wants, and 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 then we'll just pick up where, wherever it lands. The other day I had to call my pastor because I was furious and angry about something. And I said, Pastor, forgive me. I'm hot. I'm angry. I'm very emotional. I need your clarification on something because I want to know if I'm justified in being as angry as I am because it is boiling up in me. And I just need some confirmation from you. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I seeing this? And I just, before I let this thing go any further, I can tell I'm emotional I want to make sure it's zeal for God and not zeal out of something carnal. And pastor said, nope, you're right. You're seeing this thing accurately. And even him just saying that extinguished my anger and it brought a comfort to me. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. But what we've been taught to do is just basically never submit our emotion to anybody and just let it be king. And that is wicked, it's unruly, and it's lawless. You've got to learn to submit your emotions one to another. Say, Listen, do I, should I be upset about this? Should I be happy about this? Should I be joyful about this? Should I be sad about this? What, what should I be doing with my emotions here? Because we, we're Americans. We don't know. We get weepy at the star-spangled banner, and we don't, don't care anything about abortion. So it's really pretty hypocritical. It just shows how emotionally unstable we are, and we're supposed to be the spiritual people. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Yes, what indignation? That's an emotion. Yes, what fear? That's an emotion. Yes, what vehement desire? Yes, what zeal? Yea, what revenge? Look at all those godly emotions that worked to bring about a reform in the Corinthian church. Anger, like all emotions, anger is neutral, but how we use it determines whether it is uh, or not it's sin. Cease from anger, so that means you can turn it off. If God commands us to cease from anger, then anger can be turned off when necessary. Second uh, Corinthians says, Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? Paul got angry when baby Christians were tempted into sin. Are we angry when Christians are led into backsliding? Paul was. We must learn to hate what God hates and to be angered by what angers God. Be angry and sin not. Famous verse. Being sinlessly angry demonstrates a control over this passionate emotion. Titus 1.7 says, For a bishop must be not soon angry. That demonstrates his ability to regulate his anger. We don't promote hotheads. We don't promote hotheads. We promote people that are like thermal insulators who can absorb a lot of wrong before they do something about it. Joy. The Bible gives instruction on how to use joy. In many places, rejoicing is a commandment. You can imagine Psalms is full of rejoicing. You don't see that in many churches. You don't see much rejoicing. Most of our modern worship is a bunch of emo, I'm going to cut myself and hope to bleed for Jesus. No victory, no joy. It's all wham, wham, wham all the way home. Deuteronomy 12, 7, you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand unto. That includes your job you hate. Psalm 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise is comely or beautiful for the upright. Let Mount Zion rejoice because of thy judgments. 
Proverbs 5.18, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Don't try to upgrade for a younger version when you've mistreated her for 20 years. Rejoice, it's a commandment. When we fell out of love, start rejoicing. You'll find it again. Proverbs 24.17, rejoice not. So, okay, here's when we don't get happy. Rejoice not when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. 2 Corinthians 7, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. I rejoiced when you were broken. I rejoiced when you were broken. I rejoiced not at your tears. I rejoiced when your tears were so heartfelt you changed. I rejoiced to see you weeping and wailing and, and broken at the altar, not in gloating in a celebration that your life is turning around now. 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices not in inequity, it doesn't have a pride march. You as believers, you do not fellowship with pride marches because they glory in their shame. You will pick up that demon. You will curse your God and send yourself to hell fellowshipping with pride marches. We do not lock arm in arm with LGBTQ because this Christ has no fellowship with Belial. Churches have gone fully retarded thinking that that's the love of God. They have zero demonology doctrine, and that's why they're such suckers. Jealousy and envy, look at all the scriptures above on joy. It's a lot there. That's only scratching the surface. Jealousy and envy, let not your heart envy sinners. So we can control envy. But be thou in the fear of the Lord all the days of your life. Apparently we can control envy. We do not envy sinners. John 7, 2, 17. And his disciples, remember that it was written, the zeal of mine house hath eaten me up. So zeal for God's house should consume you, not zeal for the in, uh, enemy. But how many Christians are really zealous for the house of God? Amen. When I go to a, a hockey game or some kind of sporting event, I'm so excited, maybe a movie theater, I get there early. Walk with me here. Walk with me here. Just When I'm excited... And I'm zealous. I get there early. Date with a girl. Back when I was single, I didn't do much dating. Miss Manda, I was ready early. Sat in the parking lot, waiting for the time. Gave her more time because I was zealous. When you're not zealous, it's just God's house. It's just God. It's just that guy that saved us, you know. My buddy. You know, I'm a friend of God, show up late. He calls me late. <laughs> We're to be zealous for God's house, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. So there's a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present uh, you as a chast virgin to Christ. Look at other scriptures on jealousy and envy. And then shame. Even the proper use of shame must be taught. There are things to be ashamed of and others we are not are never to be ashamed of, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Praise God. We are not ashamed of the gospel. But Paul said also twice in Corinthians, I speak this to your shame. We're not ashamed of the gospel, but we have to be ashamed of some things. As we can see, we can control our mind, will, and emotions. Not only can we control them, but we, must, but we can also harness them for God-ordained purposes. Ultimately, when we control our soul, we steer our heart. So let us steer our hearts into the glory of God. Amen.